Good morning, everyone. Um, I've had such an amazing time here at Crown, and I'm so grateful to be invited here. Um, thank you for letting me come, and my favorite thing so far has definitely been connecting with the students here. You guys have some amazing professors, of course, but um, the students, you guys are incredible, and it's been so encouraging to me, so thank you. So on Wednesday, I talked about um, the values of the American dream and how they do not always coincide with the values of the kingdom of God. And so what do we do when we start to notice some of this disconnect? Um, And I think we can start to wonder about how we can learn to live as an exile in our own country. So in the Bible, there are so many stories of exile, of um, the people of God being forced into exile, or God telling his people to accept those who have been exiled into their midst. And I think it's a theme that um, those of us who maybe have never been in a position where we've had to leave our home or our family or our culture, you know, maybe we don't quite pick up on this theme. Um, But once you see it, I think you can start to see it everywhere in scripture. And I also think that learning to live as an exile is an incredibly important part of a life of Christian discipleship. So this week I've been talking a little bit about how the American dream has maybe does not have everything in common with the kingdom of God. And today I want to talk about how it might have some things in common with this idea of empire. And um, empire is another theme in in scripture. And I've been really influenced by um, a theologian named Walter Brueggemann on on this point. And he talks about empire being found in um, the story of Pharaoh. And so, how in the Exodus story, God makes it clear that the Israelites were to be radically different from Pharaoh and his empire. So, um, this is just how I kind of summed up the hallmarks of Pharaoh's empire. So, one, we can look at how Pharaoh's empire was built on predatory economics, and that included um, the slavery of the Hebrews. So, the pyramids, their wealth, it was all built on the backs of other people. And it was also driven by a theology of scarcity, of hoarding, of needing to get more and more and more. And I also think there was this element of you need to have more than your neighbor. Um, So this is in direct opposition to neighbor love. And then three, empires had this idolatry of power, right? And that's what they promised to the people who lived in them. They said, we have power, we will take care of you, trust in us. And so With empire, we have um, economic, social, and religious implications. So, in contrast to empire, the Exodus story is so important to the people of God. And I think it's a story of of learning to resist the ways of Pharaoh. So, we can think about these hallmarks really quickly, and I wish we could talk about this more, but thinking about the Ten Commandments that God gave and as he taught Moses in the wilderness and as he spoke to the prophets, um, I think we hear some of these same themes that are against empire. So we see a God who is interested in shalom and the flourishing of all communities, including the marginalized. Um, Even having practices of debt cancellation and wealth redistribution um, in the Jubilee laws. And so that is in direct opposition to this economy that is built on the exploitation of others. And we also see um, this idea of scarcity, of how God is saying, I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to always be working to produce more and more and more. Um, 
I think about God giving the Israelites manna, right? This tangible sustenance that only came from God every day. Um, Or the emphasis on Sabbath, right? Of a God who rests in order to restore and be in relationship. And I think that is in direct opposition to a Pharaoh who, who really worked people to death. So I think the Exodus story, the Ten Commandments, um, the prophets, and then even how Jesus interacted with religious leaders under the Roman Empire, I think the Bible is constantly contrasting the ways of followers of God with the ways of the rulers of the world. And so, you know, as people who believe God, we're not to hoard, you know, we're to ask God to give us this day our daily bread, we are to rest in the belovedness and abundance of God. We're not to build wealth or success on the backs of others, and we're never to forget that triad of the most vulnerable, the foreigner, um, the orphan, and the widow. And we are also not to put all of our trust in rulers to provide or protect us. So how is America similar in some ways to empire? I'm not going to answer that question fully, but I think... Sometimes our economics can be predatory, and this can happen in a society that privileges money over human dignity and flourishing. So I think, you know, I don't think any of us in this room would want, you know, women or children to work in factories for, you know, cents to a dollar an hour to make our clothes, but, you know, this is something that can and and does happen in our global economy. I just think about how Pharaoh used slaves to build his kingdom— And we in the United States have that history as well. Or think about how we operate under this model of scarcity. How sometimes we can go through life thinking there's only so many resources available. And so we need to make sure we get the best education, the best job, the best house, or the best position. And we need to try and get a toe up on our neighbors even. Or even I hear in conversations this idea that, where we live, you know, only has so many resources, and so we fear outsiders coming in and taking those resources, maybe taking our jobs. And we are also a world power. So I think it's easy to be told to put our trust in, you know, presidents or border walls or armed forces or our economy to protect our nation and to protect our own interests. Um, and that's, that's one thing that Empire always promises and it promises that it will protect those who serve it. But I think throughout the history of Christianity, you know, there have always been multiple approaches to empire and to worldly power. And one way has been to align yourself with the dominant power in the hopes of protection and growth and success and even increasing influence in the culture. Um, and then I think the other way has been to resist alignment with power in order to remain true to your principles. Um, And some people refer to this way as retreating from the culture. So we can see, you know, assimilating in some ways or retreating in other ways. Um, But I wonder if there's a third way. Um, And I think if there was going to be a third way, we we could call it the exile way. I think that people who have been exiled from worldly power, they can show us what I heard a lot growing up, how to be in this world, but not of the world. That sounds great, but what does that actually mean? I I think people who have been forced to enter into new worlds, they can actually help show us our own longings for shalom 
and how we might need to change our lives if we want to see everybody thrive. But I, I think we do need help to get to that point. And for me, I know this has come from actively pursuing relationships with those who have been exiled from the world. And one of the reasons I started to wonder about the good news of the American dream was when I was able to worship with Christians who had experienced persecution under their own government. So people from Iran, Turkey, China, and India. Their faith as a minority in their country and a minority that was sometimes oppressed was so incredibly vibrant. And in fact, people were joining the church in those places. And it reminded me of uh, the incredibly explosive growth of early Christianity. And so sometimes I just stop to think, um, like even when Christians were subjected to death by empire, when the empire, you know, killed them by lions in the stadium, or even, you know, on a cross, um, people were still willingly converting and still willingly join. Um, the good news of Jesus was so good that people gave up any hope of power or freedom or even safety in order to become a Christian. Why is that? I think it's because they believed that God loved them. And they believed that God was reorienting the world and they no longer wanted to trust an empire. But I think, you know, sometimes we in the United States don't always see clearly where we fit in both the biblical narrative and and possibly on the global stage. So for many years, I grew up believing that I was some sort of an exile without ever really understanding what that meant. Um, My church and and my upbringing solidified this feeling that being a Christian made me inherently at odds with, with popular culture in America. And while I think this may be true in some ways, there's been this unintended consequence of me hearing people who often hold various forms of power believing themselves to be marginalized and oppressed. But I think looking at it through the lens of history, American Christians hold more power than the original disciples of Jesus could ever dream of, Um, both in the highest levels of government as well as the amount of property, wealth, businesses, and institutions that are owned and led by believers. And yet this persistent narrative exists that, you know, American Christianity is under attack, it's marginalized, and and ultimately it's in danger of losing power. And this narrative has existed for centuries, and I think it continues to be employed because it is a powerful way to get people engaged. But I, I think often about how Paul talks about the Christian is not to be conformed by the patterns of this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And and some theologians say that Paul, when he wrote that, he was making the assumption that the people he was writing to already have, in some ways, been conformed by the world. This has already happened. This is just a reality. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to identify how we have conformed and to be changed. So I guess a question I wanted to ask this week is, How aware are we in this day and age of how we have been conformed to the world or even to this idea of the American dream? And how are we to start to identify how to live in our own Babylon, our own empire, both as a citizen and as an outsider? And sometimes I think we need help. So I've lived and worked in refugee communities in the U.S. for the past 14 years. And, you know, I have the privilege and the blessing of having friends who are literal exiles, so people who have been forced from their homes. 
And, you know, refugees are different from other immigrants in that they don't necessarily want to be here. Um, they might not have a desire for this American dream. In fact, many of my friends and neighbors long to go back to their home, long to go back to their communities, but they most likely will never be able to. So in a way, their worlds have ended, and they are now having to start over. And my friendships with them have brought an awareness of my life in the light of global inequality. And in many ways, they show me my own privilege. And so when I am tempted to think of myself as marginalized, they put it in perspective for me. Uh, I think about a few years ago when I was living in Minneapolis, I, I taught literacy to refugee women, most of them from East Africa, in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood. And I remember one class, we were all learning the language for how to talk about our families, how to discuss our families. So we went around the classroom, and each woman said how many children she had. And then the last woman stopped, and she was really struggling to communicate with me. I, I couldn't quite figure out what she was saying. So she was telling me she had six children, and that four of them were here, and that two of them were here, and she, and she pointed to the ground. And I didn't understand, but finally, through, through a lot of work, we were finally able to identify what she was trying to say was that she had given birth to six children, but that two had died and were buried in a refugee camp in Kenya. And that was a really terrible English teaching day because it was the day I had to teach this woman the words to communicate the death of her children. And then after that one woman shared, all the other women stood up. And they wanted to go around the room again, and, and they wanted to do the exercise again. Um, and this time, they all wanted to share how many of their children were living and how many had died. And as we went around the room, each and every woman shared a story of loss. Each and every one had a story of suffering and a story that highlighted the inequality of the world. I myself have two children. And both of my pregnancies were complicated. And if I didn't live in this country, there's a very good chance that both myself and my children would have died. But we didn't because we were here. And so listening to the stories of these women, these women who are some of the most vulnerable in the world, that my country has welcomed, it has reoriented my life. I am less likely to feel easy about my blessings, and I'm more likely to pay attention and more likely to ask, why is it that my children survived when so many others didn't? And I think besides showing us our relative privilege, I think exiles can teach us who are a little too comfortable to begin to question our alignment with the values of empire, just our culture. So a really simple way this has happened to me is in regards to the concept of time and relationships. So many of my refugee and immigrant friends, they come from cultures that are not quite as obsessed with time and punctuality and achievement as we are. So perhaps they come from a place with less of a scarcity mindset. Um, you know, the American dream is built on you work hard and you work all the time, you know. But my refugee friends do work very hard, but the way they re approach relationships is so different from me. So I will go and I will visit with a refugee friend, I will drink tea, I will eat cookies, I will look at photo albums, um, I will be there with my kids, they'll be making so much noise, I will stay there for, to me, what feels like the entire day. And after I've been there for several hours, I'll get up to go, and then my friend, their face will just crumple, and they'll be like, what? 
You're leaving so soon? You just got here. <laughs> um, another friend of mine who works with refugees in Kentucky, she told me how her church really wanted to be welcoming to refugee families, but they quickly realized they were going to have to rethink how they ran these community dinners that they were holding. And they started having to plan four-hour-long dinners because their refugee friends wouldn't start opening up about their lives until hour three. (laughs) Why is this? I think it's because their communities relied on these strong relational bonds in order to function. And time translated into relationship, and then it built community, and it built a place of safety. So it's been so sobering and also refreshing for me to learn how to slow down and invest in time spent with people. And it's something I really want to pass on to my own family. Uh, My friends also point out my orientation towards individualism and autonomy. Um, In another English class I taught, I remember I would get so frustrated because every Friday in class, all the cell phones would start to go off and my students would just answer them all the time. Um, And as the teacher, I began to feel a little disrespected. And so finally, I asked my students, I said, can you please stop answering your phone during class time? And that's when they told me that Fridays were the days that the people in the refugee camps would call and ask for money. And every single one of them had a sad story. So either they needed money to buy formula for a sick baby, or to pay for funeral costs, or to buy food for an auntie who didn't have any. And I was totally shocked and humbled at my own ignorance. So what was more important, me getting through my lesson um, or them connecting to their communities? And, And so for me, that was a picture of both the importance of relationships and a stark reminder of the difference between communities in crisis and a community of affluence, which I came from. So on Wednesday, I talked a little bit about Luke 4 and how Jesus introduced his ministry to the world. And I think, um, Jesus' sermon in Luke 10, the Sermon on the Plain, is another example of how we can start to identify how strong our allegiance to certain cultural values can be and if we need to reorient them in light of Christ. So we can look at Luke 10, um, called the Sermon on the Plain, and this is what it says. This is what Jesus says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So thinking back to Wednesday, we can look at these categories again. Um, We have the poor, the hungry, those who weep, and those who are hated. So just thinking both biblically and now, you know, in Egypt or Babylon, Rome or America, where are poverty or hunger or sadness or oppression ever honored or valued or considered blessed? And how much of our culture is actually obsessed with running in the opposite direction of these spaces? And, and how does that impact us who live in this world? But I really think we need to grapple with the fact that Jesus says these groups of people are blessed. And the rest of Jesus' teachings and ministry all point back to this radical reorientation of cultural and religious and even economic values, of living into a new reality that's called the kingdom of God, what God's dream for the world is. But what do empires value? In Luke 10, Jesus doesn't just stop at the blessings. He actually keeps going. And um, in the next part, he says, But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is an intense passage. (laughs) Who, Who is Jesus warning? The rich, the full, the happy, and those who are in favor, those who have favor in the culture. And do those sound like values that we are pursuing in our own lives? Why is Jesus warning us about them? I think it's because he's pointing out how living into empire values makes us forget about God, where our abundance comes from, and it makes us forget about our neighbors. So we have to learn to resist the values of empire as best as we can if we're going to live into God's dream for the world. So, how can we do this? How can we learn to live as exiles in our own communities, our country, or just even in the values of what I've been calling the American dream. You know, one thing I think we can do is we can work to invite in and actually learn from exiles, so from refugees and immigrants themselves. Um, According to the UN Refugee Resettlement Office, there's currently over 65 million people around the world who are displaced as both refugees and as asylum seekers. And this breaks all previous records. So exile is not just a biblical theme, but it's a global reality in 2018. And I think how we respond to this crisis of displacement says a lot about us. So when we close our doors to exiles, we shut out the very people that God says are here to teach us how to live into true shalom, to live into the kingdom of God. Exiles, or the stranger and the foreigner, are a part of the triad of the vulnerable that scriptures are constantly telling us the people of God, to care for. But I don't think we just need to limit it to looking at immigrants and refugees. I think, I think if we seek hard enough, we'll see a lot of these examples of people who are trying to live both in the world and not of it. Um, one of my favorite examples, actually, is Mr. Rogers. Um, Mr. Rogers is just one of the most amazing people in the world, in my eyes. And he really sought the flourishing of the children in the United States without being conformed to the patterns of empire, even, or even um, television and media in general. So Mr. Rogers, who, who was an ordained minister, he was so passionate about seeing television be used to educate children in social and emotional intelligence. And he did this for a specific reason that came out of his love for God. He wanted children to know that they were safe and loved And that the only way to deal with our feelings in a healthy way is to recognize and name them. And and that's what he did his whole life. He made television programs for children. And he didn't want them just to be emotionally intelligent for themselves. But he wanted them to be members of a neighborhood that valued everyone, every single person. And sometimes he actually got flack for not being like Sesame Street, which emphasized uh, learning the alphabet and learning numbers all the time. But he had his own reasons for that. And actually, um, this is what he said to the American Psychiatric Society in 1962. He said, What really matters is whether he, the child, uses the alphabet for the declaration of war or the description of a sunrise. Does he use his numbers for the final count 
at Buchenwald or the specifics of a brand new bridge. I think with that statement, he really went to the core of it all. He was in a fight to reach the souls of children in a world where people who were just following orders manned the gas chambers in the Holocaust. What is our education even for? What is the alphabet for? What are numbers for? What does it matter if we're not using them to love our neighbors as ourselves? So I want to end with one more story. And oftentimes in scripture, and even when I am reading this and, and thinking about this, the good news can start to feel like bad news to the powerful. And I think about this recurrent metaphor in the Old Testament especially, um, how God talks about how the valleys will be raised up and the mountains will be brought low. And I think about this equitable kingdom, um, you know, but how does it feel if you were born on top of the mountain? How does it feel, you know, to be brought low? But I don't think this is the full story of who our God is and how he works in the world. And so there's a story in scripture that has really stood out to me. And this is the story of the centurion in Matthew 8. So we can quickly read this story. Um, In Matthew 8, it says when he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion, this is like a Roman guard who was in charge of, I think, a hundred people came forward to him, appealing to him. And he said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So the centurion doesn't quite match up to what I've been talking about this whole time. Like, he is somebody who had authority. He's somebody who had power and affluence and relative safety. And he actually wasn't even one of the people of God. Um, And yet he was still able to receive the good news of Jesus because Jesus does heal his servant. And, And in fact, his faith blew Jesus away. I mean, that's quite the accomplishment. And why is this? In this story, how can the good news that is at odds with empire be good news for someone who's privileged in that empire? And in this story, the centurion of the centurion, it mentions that he recognizes that Jesus has authority. Authority over what? I think he recognized that Jesus has authority over evil and over suffering. And the centurion was in need of Jesus' authority precisely because he was also in relationship with the suffering. And I think it it was this proximity that transformed him to be able to see who Jesus was. But why? I actually don't think that proximity alone can change us to love our neighbors. My neighborhood is actually a perfect example of this. Not too long ago, one of my friends who wears the hijab, she's a Muslim woman, She was spat upon as she was crossing the street by another one of my neighbors. Proximity alone won't change us, and in fact, it can sometimes increase tensions. 
So what's different here? What's different about this story? And I, I do think that key is proximity plus entering into the suffering of another person, of one of our neighbors. And the centurion was changed by seeing his slave suffer. And he chose to step into this place of asking Jesus for help and for seeing Jesus as good news. And Jesus marveled at this, and and I do too. So I think that there's good news for those of us who, maybe like the centurion, have benefited in empire, who have benefited in the American dream. But I think we need to do as Jesus both said and modeled, and we need to be willing to enter into relationship with those who are suffering in the landscape of our own communities and even in the global perspective. And I think we need to invite them into our lives and we need to let them change us. So this week, I've been talking a lot about learning to pay attention. Pay attention to those values that reside within you. Pay attention to how strong they are. And I've talked about learning to pay attention to start to view our own culture as having some similarities to Egypt or Babylon, Rome. And and this can be a hard lesson to learn, and I want to acknowledge that. It can be hard, especially if the American dream has been good for us, and it will continue to be good for us, and it would be good news for maybe even our families. But in my life, God has used the witness of exiles to start to break through my own conformed mind and to reveal the radical nature of the good news of the kingdom of God. And I I think my prayer um, for Crown and my prayer for myself is that, you know, we who exist in this world, in this American dream context, can continue to invite in and learn from exiles and, and learn to live like them. And my prayer for us is that as we do this, that we really will get to see just maybe even the tiniest bit of God's dream for the world being realized. And that will be good news for all of us. So thank you so much for listening to me speak this week. I'm going to pray and uh, then we'll be dismissed to our classes. Father God, I thank you so much for this space, for this opportunity to learn and to dialogue. Jesus, would you help us reorient our lives in the direction where you said you would be at work and where I know you are still at work in this world. Would you give us the joy of loving our neighbors and being loved in return by them? And would you bless these students and this faculty and this staff as they go about their day? In your name we pray, amen.